he murders the entire family. He comes back for the little child and murders him, yeah. takes his head. I read that that uh, wild. <laughs> the, the studio was not happy with that scene. And they were like, we can't have a kid be killed in this way. And Tim Burton was like, it's rated R. He's like, the thing that I hated as a kid growing up is seeing kids put in peril and then always saved. And he like really wanted kids to die in this movie. So like we get like an unborn child was yeah. murdered. Like no, the yeah, pregnant mother was yeah. murdered. And then the kid like that, that. I mean, that scene's terrifying for yeah. a child. Like he comes back for the child and pulls him out of the floor. And like, you know, he's killed off screen. He's but... killed off screen, but he's like putting... You see him shoving a third head into the bag. Friends, to episode 178 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we're discussing Washington Irving's 1820 short story and Tim Burton's 1999 film, Sleepy Hollow. All right, James, the sun is shining, the birds are chirping, spring is in the air, and for some reason we decided to talk about a Halloween story. <laughs> yep. Heads will roll. <laughs> I feel like we goofed up a little bit on this one, but, uh, you know, it's fun. It's it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm all for promoting, like, spooky season year-round horror. Yeah. This isn't even really horror as much as it's, like, really a Halloween, like, spooky yeah, story. Yeah, that was the mistake. I, I, I completely agree. Like, horror should be embraced year-round. It doesn't need to just be a Halloween thing, in my opinion. But this story... This story is very Halloween, <laughs> and I didn't remember yeah. that because it had been a while. Uh, getting into yeah. it, I was like, "Damn!" Like the short, the short story itself is very like autumnal, and there's a lot of like leaves changing, and it feels like a ghost story, and it, it definitely has that vibe. And then you know, then you get into the movie, and it's full on Halloween up and down. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little weird to be covering it in April, I think. But yeah, but I do. Yeah. I I love the the opportunity to jump into this one because like I got to d- dive into Tim Burton in a way I hadn't in a long time. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think I think it's gotten to the point now where there's like a Tim Burton and Johnny Depp fatigue. Mm. But like this this movie was before that, and uh, yeah. I think we should think about both of the but you know think of them now and think of them then and kind of uh, especially think about the fact that like Tim Burton is a very distinct stylistic director right like you know right. a tim burton movie when you see one um and i think that is something to be like celebrated in film like different voices and and someone who's clearly created a niche of in and of himself mm-hmm. i completely agree um i have a lot to say about the movie uh we're gonna start off though by talking about that old short story the legend yeah. of sleepy hollow um and i have some background information on washington irving that i, I definitely want to share with you before we get to that though um this weekend, I am going to be attending the Flights of Foundry convention, which is a virtual free convention. Um, it's very focused on like writers, podcasters, it seems like some filmmaking, comic books, all kinds of stuff. Um, and I am on two panels. I'm going to be moderating two panels. One is called Podcast Care and Feeding, How to Manage Expectations, Grow Your Audience, and Keep Momentum. And the second is called From Verbal to Visual, Adapting Art for the Screen. Uh, both of those panels are on Saturday, the 17th, 
So if you'd like to check them out, like I said, they're free. Um, and then I think there might be a version of them that's going to get posted to YouTube, but it'll depend on, uh, I think if, if everybody signs off on that, you know, happening. So I can't guarantee that. Um, but if they do, I'm sure I can throw it on like a playlist on our, our YouTube channel, I think, so people can find it that way. Um, but yeah, I hope people check that out. That If any of that sounds interesting, it uh, should be fun. I think one is like at 10 a.m. Pacific, and then the other is at like 8 p.m. Pacific on, on Saturday. So check that out. Yeah, I plan on being in the in the chat and, and like uh, participating in those. Yeah. So I'll You're be there. Me? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> This story, though, I, I mean, like, I, it was a fun, like, I don't know about you, but it, it, it was kind of delightful to to get into this mode at this time of year. Like, it took me a minute because mm-hmm. I was like, this feels weird. This doesn't feel like the right time to be looking at pumpkins and, and, and getting all spooky. But, like, once I got into it, it was kind of a nice, I don't know, change of pace from from the actual weather I'm seeing outside my window right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, it makes me look forward to that, to autumn when it eventually comes. Yeah. Um, It's such an interesting story, too, because like it is written in the 1800s, but it didn't feel too, you know, it didn't feel very dated to me. You know, there was some some wordsmithing happening, some a lot of like, like elongated words and some flowery descriptions of weather. He loved to talk about the weather for sure. Yeah. It seemed like he was trying to like. I don't know. It seemed like there was a real uh, one-upsmanship going on with the writers at the time when talking about weather. It was like, I'm going to just like really nail the way this I'm going to make looks. you feel this breeze on your face right now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, it was it was kind of funny, but like I liked it, though. Like It was well-written. Yeah. It's just like yeah. I, I, there's a reason why at this point people are like, man, maybe don't do that too, so much because I think these guys nailed it back in the day. You know, <laughs> all these writers from the 1800s, they like wore it out to where now it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're going to talk about the weather find a different way to talk about it that's interesting and not just like describe it in like the utmost detail mm-hmm. yeah it's there's something nice about it too because it, it's fun to like it's like and I'm not, i don't want to compare this story to shakespeare but like going back and reading shakespeare there, there's a lot more subtext yeah. and things built into his writing than i think appears here but it's nice because it's so different yeah. uh, in ways yeah, Irving's a well-known writer. Um, I, I definitely want to talk about the story with you, but before we do that, let's talk about the the guy, right? Like, do you know anything about him? I, so little. I know almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Washington Irving was born in 1783 and died in 1859. I think this makes him the oldest author we've covered who wasn't like... I think because like we covered some old legends from like the Grimm's fairy tales and stuff, but like mm-hmm. those were collected stories. Whereas like you know he he is the author of this, um, so I, I think he's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, we've covered. He was an American short story writer, essayist, biographer, historian, and diplomat of the early 19th century. He is best known for his short stories Rip Van Winkle in 1819 and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow in 1820. So there's a lot of interesting stuff out there about this guy. Um, I'll focus on just a few things. So in the spring of 1819, Irving sent to his brother Ebenezer in New York a set of short prose pieces that he asked to be published as the sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon Gent. I do not know why it is named that, but that's the name (laughs) of it. The first installment containing Rip Van Winkle was an enormous success and the rest of the work would be equally successful. It was issued in 1819 to 1820 in seven installments in New York and in two volumes in London. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow would appear in the sixth issue of the New York edition and the second volume of the London edition. 
Like many successful authors of the era, Irving struggled against literary bootleggers. In England, some of the sketches were reprinted in periodicals without his permission, a legal practice as there was no international copyright law at the time. To prevent further piracy in Britain, Irving paid to have the first four American installments published as a single volume in London. Irving's reputation soared, and for the next two years, he led an active social life in Paris and Great Britain, where he was often feted as an anomaly of literature, an upstart American who dared to write English well. That is something about the story that I found fascinating, was that he, it's so American, it's so wrapped up in like post-revolutionary war, you know, these small villages and, and like, did, do you, did you know this stuff about Hessian mercenaries? Did you, are you familiar? Uh, not a lot. Okay. So Hessian mercenaries were Germans who were basically like, they were kind of mercenaries, but they weren't because like their government was like loaning them to the British and they were using them as uh, soldiers in the Revolutionary War against the, the Americans. And what's crazy that I learned is that 25% of land troops that fought in the American Revolution that were on the British side mm-hmm. were Hessian soldiers, basically. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And that's what that's what the Headless Horseman ends up being. He's a sure. Hessian who was killed in battle. Well, and like speaking of what we were talking about with the Brothers Grimm stuff, like there is some implication that Irving was at least inspired by ghost stories of the area because he went to Sleepy Hollow, which is a real place uh, mm-hmm. in New York. And in fact, uh, Washington Irving is buried there. In a cemetery. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, apparently a very simple headstone. So, yeah, he he had been there, I think, in his childhood, and then he wrote this story when he was abroad in Europe. It seemed like he was inspired by like the stories he heard at the time, and it's still apparently considered to be one of the most haunted places in America, which, you know, take that for what it's worth, but <laughs> mm-hmm. that's what it's considered. <laughs> So Irving is largely credited as the first American man of letters and the, f- and the first to earn his living solely by his pen. Uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow acknowledged Irving's role in promoting American literature in 1859, saying, quote, We feel a just pride in his renown as an author, not forgetting that to his other claims upon our gratitude. He adds also that of having been the first to win for our country an honorable name and position in the history of letters. So yeah, I mean he he was well respected. Um, he's he's famous for popularizing the nickname Gotham for New York City. Um, Interesting. Which uh, I, we're gonna we're gonna touch on that in a little bit. Really, and uh, he is also credited credited with inventing the expression "quote the Almighty Dollar." Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean he's very American, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it is also interesting to think of like the British community writing community looking at American writers at the time and thinking like they were you know just upstarts and they weren't necessarily on the same level and then someone like this comes along and is accepted and has a social like you said like is a part of the social circles oh, yeah. in, in Europe and stuff. He was so. incredibly popular, very uh, well known, renowned um, as he you know as he went on. Unlike you know like Edgar Allan Poe and people like that made a lot of money off of his work. He was an yeah. early like advocate for authors um, being an actual profession that you should get paid to do. Mm-hmm. And so he was a proponent of like copyright, uh, things like that. A lot of these early things, you know, he was he was involved in. And so, you know, I, I think that's cool. You know, shout out to him for all that. because That's all very important, you know, because, uh, you know, writing is a legitimate profession and should be treated like yeah. that. So. Um, you know, I think he's absolutely 
it's cool to know that he's like one of the forefathers of that, at least in our country, of like fighting for that. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Um, and, I mean, there's a ton known about him. You know, I could get into his life and stuff, but like, I'll just touch on stuff as if it comes up and it seems interesting because we have a lot to cover here. I know that. Um, so let's talk about the story itself. Um, I'm going to read a synopsis so we can uh, differentiate it because I know some people will have clicked on this because they've only seen the movie maybe and haven't read this story. So I'll read a quick uh, summary of it so you can kind of understand how it's different because it is very different. And um, oh, actually, before we get into that, I did want to say this thing has been adapted a ton of times. Um, I, I, I wrote down just some of the notable ones. So let's run through them real quick. Um, in 1922, a silent film uh, which starred Will Rogers as Ichabod Crane. Um, it was uh, adapted in 1949 uh, called The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad uh, by Walt Disney. Disney, yeah. yeah which was later released as Just the Legend of Sleepy Hollow in 1958. Um, of course, the 1999 film that we're going to be covering um, on television. It was uh, adapted in 1980 called The Legend of Sleepy Hollow starring Jeff Goldblum. Um, the Holy le- crap. That's yeah, awesome. 1980. And then 1985, uh, there was an episode of Shelley Duvall's Tall Tales and Legends called The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. I heard about that as well. Yeah. yeah. There was one called The Tale of the Midnight Ride in 1994 as an episode of Nickelodeon series Are You Afraid of the Dark that serves as a sequel Ooh. to the original story. That was my shit. <laughs> Are You Afraid of the Dark was so awesome. Yeah. And then uh, there was uh, one called The Hollow in 2004 which was a film of t- uh, ABC family television film, which focused on the teenage descendant of Ichabod Crane. And then of course, 2013 TV show, uh, sleepy hollow, which was a crime horror series in which Ichabod Crane is reimagined as an English professor and turncoat during the revolutionary war who awakens in the 21st century. Anyway, you may have heard of this one. Uh, that's another fairly famous one. I didn't see any of that. I remember when it came There's out four though. seasons of it that ran. That's wild. Yeah. I watched. Well, I think I watched network? some episodes. Like ABC. I, uh, I don't have it here. Yeah, I don't remember. Gotcha. I, I don't have it here, but yeah, I think it was one of the major networks like that, like a like an Wild. ABC or something, Fox or something, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, yeah. So I just thought it was cool. Like this, this is, and that's just that's just like TV and film. There's also like plays and music and like it's a foundational horror story, especially when it comes to like uh, ghost stories in our country. Um, so it's a very yeah. American, it's very Halloween and a lot of the, um, like jack-o'-lantern stuff comes back to this. Like it's, it wasn't invented, like, um, it was a thing. It, it was a thing over in Europe, but, uh, Irving's tale kind of talked about the pumpkin prominently, which we'll get into. And, um, around this time, it started becoming more of a thing. I don't know how much of it, his, his original tale explicitly ties it to it, but the adaptations over time strongly started reinforcing the jack-o'-lantern motif which became such a big iconic thing for like how we celebrate halloween yeah. in our country i mean even outside of sleepy hall i feel like a headless horseman has become a thing in it just in other stories as yeah well. so like, i was seeing that uh, headless horseman was is like a famous kind of apparition from europe um gotcha. where apparently uh, you know it, it always has to do with like a vengeful spirit or like you know People see it if they've been not treating the dead with respect, things like that. I think and mm-hmm. you can you can summon these spirits and uh, it often does have to do with, you know, like battlefields because there's so many battlefields or, you know, soldiers died. And so often it's a mm-hmm. it's a soldier, um, which mm-hmm. is which is the case here. So but let's actually talk about the story because the story is pretty interesting. 
The story is set in 1790 in the countryside around the Dutch settlement of Terrytown in a secluded glen known as Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow is renowned for its ghosts and the haunting atmosphere that pervades the imaginations of its inhabitants. The most infamous specter in the hollow is the Headless Horseman, supposedly the ghost of a Hessian trooper whose head had been shot off by a stray cannonball and who rides forth to the scene of battle in nightly quest of his head. The legend relates the tale of Ichabod Crane, an extremely superstitious super schoolmaster from Connecticut who competes with Abraham Brom Bones Van Brunt, the town rowdy, for the hand of 18-year-old Katrina Van Tassel, the daughter and sole child of a wealthy farmer, Baltus Van Tassel. Bones, who's unable to force Ichabod into a physical showdown to settle things, plays a series of pranks on the schoolmaster. The ambitious crane then attends a harvest party at the Van Tassel's homestead. He dances, partakes in the feast, and listens to ghostly legends told by Brom and the locals. But his true aim is to propose to Katrina after the guests leave. After failing to secure Katrina's hand, Ichabod rides home on his temperamental horse, crestfallen, through the woods between Van Tressel's farmstead and the farmhouse in Sleepy Hollow where he is quartered. After nervously passing a lightning-stricken tree, Ichabod encounters a cloaked rider at an intersection in a menacing swamp. Unsettled by his fellow traveler's eerie sighs and silence, the teacher is horrified to discover that his companion's head is not on his shoulders, but on his saddle. In a frenzied race to the bridge adjacent to where the Hessian is said to vanish according to the rule in a flash of fire and brimstone before crossing it, Ichabod rides for his life. However, while Crane is able to cross the bridge ahead of the ghoul, Ichabod turns back in horror to see the monster rear his horse and hurl his severed head directly at him. The missile strikes his head and sends him tumbling into the dust from his horse. The next morning, Ichabod has mysteriously disappeared from the area, leaving Katrina to later marry Brom Bones, who was said to, quote, look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was related. Indeed, the only relics of the schoolmaster's flight are his discarded hat, a trampled saddle, and a mysterious shattered pumpkin. Although the true nature of both the Headless Horseman and Ichabod's disappearance that night are left open to interpretation, the story implies that the Horseman was really Brahm in disguise, and suggests that Crane survived the fall and immediately fled Sleepy Hollow in horror, never to return but to prosper elsewhere, or perhaps was killed by Brahm himself. Irving's narrator concludes the story by stating that the old Dutch wives continued to promote the belief that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means, and a legend develops around his disappearance and sightings of his melancholy spirit. Yeah, I do love in, in true ghost story fashion, there's like a bit of ambiguity at the end of the story, uh, which, you know, then other filmmakers and other people can adapt and run with and stuff. Uh, but I, I really did appreciate that in the story. I and, and like, you know, yeah, of course, you can imply that maybe he survived and ran away or whatever, or maybe he was actually killed. But who knows? Maybe it was a fucking headless horseman, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I think the story heavily implies that there was no horseman, which is interesting, right? right? Like, because this was a time where people believed in ghost stories. I mean, people still do, but like, I would think this would be a lot more prevalent. But it was also a time where maybe people were more worried about like bringing the wrath of these kind of spirits on so that maybe they didn't want to be like, telling stories about it because they would be afraid that what it might cause i don't know I i'm curious because he did not lean into it ultimately he kind of gave the reader an out to like 
kind of a wink and a nod like you know this is the kind of story you can you can tell your children maybe because it's not really about a ghost mm. well it, it's basically in a cautionary tale as well yeah. like in a in a sense but i'm not really 100 percent sure like where he's landing on like what the story is about because yeah. it's like ultimately the guy who murders him potentially you know wins in the end and what was the the moral of the story mm. so um, so cautionary tale i think is a is a apt description because Think about the character of Ichabod Crane, right? He is a schoolmaster who is described as being like almost a vagabond, right? Like he he arrives in town to become the schoolmaster. He gets like a, a classroom, but he doesn't he doesn't have a home. He like only has what belongings he could carry on his nap in his knapsack, and he mm. stays at the homes of the of the like students, right? Like he like goes around for different homes and stays with the families of these students. Yeah. And so he's this outsider and there's a lot of talk about like how he's kind of a hit with the women of the town because he's more learned, like learned than like the, the farmers. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and then it talks about like, basically Brom becomes the sort of uh, figurehead of that, like resistance, like how how dare you come in here. Right. Um, And then, yeah, I think like the cautionary tale of that too. Right. Like uh, maybe like the big city guy coming in and thinking, He's going to be able to pull one he over all, on, yeah. on the country bumpkins. So I don't know. He's basically saying the like lay place lay down roots and like be a normal citizen within society and don't big time anybody. Don't like sort of like crash on people's couches and maybe. Although Ichabod Ichabod is also like the hero of the story, really. Like he's who we we identify with most, I think. Um, but yeah. it's funny though because like the narrator is also like a character, right? Like. The narrator, I don't think the narrator is supposed to be Washington Irving, but maybe it is. And he's like making commentary throughout, right? Like he's talking about right. women. Like there's a lot of like really obviously dated 200 year old stuff about women in here. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and like one of the most famous ones is, is talking about how um, he's dealt with all these different devils and, you know, none of them prepared him for the challenge of a woman. A woman. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's like the narrator, right? Like the narrator talking about how he'd, he'd never quite figured out how to beguile a woman or something. It was weird. It was like, he kept like inserting himself. And then, and then later on when he go when, uh, Ichabod goes to the feast, he's like, oh, I could keep talking about all these foods cause they sound so delicious, but you're probably getting impatient. So let me carry on. And I was shocked. I was like, this felt like a very modern thing to have a narrator sort of inject himself into the story in this way. Mm -hmm. Uh, from a writer perspective i guess i don't know if anyone else cares but i thought it was interesting no i I mean i think it's cool yeah it's interesting to think about because it's like how i haven't read a ton from this period of time so like not a ton to compare it to but i assume that it wasn't the norm well and i i don't know if if you picked up on this but like the story itself is incredibly passive it's very Mm -hmm. like i'm i'm relating to you the legend of this we get very few scenes and much more of like summarizing what happened. Yeah. Um, we don't get a, we don't get a lot of direct dialogue. You know what I mean? Like, there's very little of that. Um, and I think that was definitely more of a of of the time. But it feels very old fashioned. And that was something that was yeah, a like little, little camp difficult. stories you would tell over a over you know ghost stories you would tell over a campfire kind of thing. But without any dramatic scenes, which like is one of the best parts of telling camp. You know, <laughs> the, the, right. it's like yeah. So you're leaving out all the dramatic bits. Um, I mean, some dramatic stuff happens. Don't get me wrong. It's just the way it's conveyed is, is a very like he heard a to- he heard this tale about Ichabod Crane, and let me tell you about the tale of Ichabod Crane rather than like 
I'm going to tell you the story. I'm going to tell you about the story instead. I, that's like a small distinction, but I feel like that carries right. through. It's just like a legend at that point. Yeah. It's just a yeah, passing along a legend. I, I, I couldn't help it. <laughs> there was a part where he was talking about Katrina and he just kept describing her as ripe and plump and fresh and like all this like weird stuff. And mm-hmm. he's this school teacher who's, you know, whipping his students. There's a lot of long t- spot talking about his like <laughs> use of the birch and how he, he believes in yeah punishment and he's doing the work for their parents and stuff. Yeah, like he'll he'll he doesn't like to beat the like weak children. So instead he beats the strong children like twice over. <laughs> Like, something oh about like don't spare the rod you know spoil the child I, whatever yeah that whole thing yeah it was pretty tough like they're, they're, i mean it's 200 years old so like I, I wasn't expecting you know anything less than that but i was kind of shocked at how much of this story was like kind of horny and like uh, talking about the farm girl and stuff and then i found out katrina's named like the exact name of a real real person that he met uh a real daughter of a of like a farm person that he he met and like asked like hey can i put your daughter in a story and he was like yeah he's like i'll change it around but i like to use real people's names so that makes it even creepier this was the exact real name of a person (laughs) that he had met uh, a young woman super weird uh so okay irving (laughs) uh he at one point he's describing her like delicious feet i think at one point i was like oh okay Awesome. Uh, great, great work. Also, Ichabod Crane was apparently the name of somebody he met. Like, the, the, he liked to use real people's names and just put them right in his mm. books, which is, you know, interesting. interesting. I, I wouldn't recommend it these days, but. I was going to say, like, you, you're just like. Probably not going to get sued in 18, 1800s. You're just, impl- I don't know, you're setting yourself up. If you if you met these people, hopefully yeah. they don't come back around. Well, and, and also, like, hey. you could probably have a safe bet they're never going to read it, but I don't know. True. I did think it was really funny where it was like he was renowned for having read several books all the way through <laughs> yeah that was so funny to me i was like damn we're geniuses back I then put that in my bio <laughs> i'm renowned for having read several books all the way through <laughs> uh so good so good like there, i think like a third of the story is just him on the horse riding to the party oh it, it genuinely is yeah <laughs> we we i mean by the time the horseman's even brought up we're over halfway like gotta be over halfway but uh yeah, I mean, I was surprised because I remembered some of the of the movie, but I was also, you know, I didn't remember it enough to where it, this story didn't make me wonder how the how the movie actually interpreted some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly, very different. And uh, like I said before, I, I do like this idea of the ending, like sort of running away and and leaving leaving some sort of ambiguity. The only thing that's left was his hat and his, you know, this the smashed remains of the the head or whatever. The pumpkin, it was. yeah. I mean, the pumpkin, yeah, and that. I, that's really fascinating, right? The idea of it almost being a prank, this this heavily implication. It's like a twist ending, right? This was probably shocking to people. Like, oh, I thought it was a real horseman, but there's a pumpkin at the end, so maybe it wasn't. It, you know, this is it's very early blueprint for a story, but it's cool to see that, you know, and to see, like, at its core, like, what a good Halloween story can be. Um, you know, obviously, maybe not up to the standards of today when it comes to, like, the plot, but yeah um, the the cores but just bare bones like you think of the structure of it and like the like the idea the idea you need a couple seeds and you can create something like this that can you know obviously at that time could become such a classic piece of of pop culture i mean culture american literature i would say you know yeah. this is this is an enduring 
piece of, of popular fiction for sure that we're, you know, obviously here we are 200 years later still talking about it. So that's, that's pretty yeah. incredible. I'm sure that he knew he was like, one day there'll be a podcast about Ichabod. I don't even know what it is, but <laughs> two men hang out by the pea pods. It's, I don't know. It's like radio, but, but not. There was definitely not radio and <laughs> when he died, 1859, yeah. you think? I don't think so. Uh, he, but he predicted radio, which in turn predicted podcasting. It's actually mind-boggling to think about how long ago this was. Like, like he was yeah. he was referencing in the story, like the Something Knights of Revolutionary Yore. War. Well, yes, but he was yeah. also referencing like the Knights of Yore, like fighting a dragon and stuff. And I was like, that was probably closer to him then than he is to us now. Yeah, <laughs> just bringing up like the Revolutionary War. Like he's he's writing this in like 1820, so he's way you know how much closer to the Revolutionary yeah. War is he? than we are to him at this point. He like, met George Washington as a child. Jesus George Christ. Washington yeah. like came to his house and like blessed him or something. And he has like a painting of it that he commissioned and hung on his house for the rest of his life. Wild. Which I've seen a picture of. <laughs> That's what I mean. And so like, it's very, it, yeah, it's interesting to see it in like American history. Yeah. That, like in that way. Yeah, it really is. Well, we've got a lot of movie to talk about. So I'm going to, I'm going to hand it over to you now and let's, let's get into this Tim Burton Halloween classic yeah let's do it so I mean we have to start off just by saying like our history with it at least a little bit I'd love to hear like where you where where you first saw it and like your thoughts on it for me I think this is a movie I have seen all the way through once when it came out around when it came out I was too young for it I think it freaked me out a little bit um (laughs) you know 1999 I would have been like 14 you know like this movie is this is a radar movie, right? Like it feels like it should be at least with the, with the amount of gore oh no, it is radar. It is okay. It is radar. Yeah, yeah. So it's got to be with the number of deaths and stuff. Like yeah, um, and then it's a movie that I think was on at a lot of parties, and so I've seen bits and pieces of it a lot over the years, and that was one of the things that it immediately jumped out at me is just how like this is the perfect Halloween party movie to just throw on the TV. Like it's so perfect yeah. for it. I mean, Christopher Walken is the Headless Horseman, so yeah. it's like he's just up there looking crazy and screaming and stuff, so yeah. I mean, that's just one of a million things that makes it perfect for, for Halloween, yes. but yeah. What about you, man? What's your what's your experience? I remember, you know, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but it's definitely something I've seen a lot. It's it's one of those ones that, like, growing up, it was sort of in a rotation of of movies that would be on around, around Halloween, and so I would end up watching it a lot. I do remember, like, understanding... Tim Burton and like like seeing filmmakers as their own individual like filmographies and I remember like thinking of this movie and thinking about how I don't know when I was coming up like goth was very cool emo was cool like sure. uh I remember going to Hot Topic and buying Nightmare Before Christmas stuff obviously mm-hmm. like all, all that kind of stuff you know a movie like this anything Tim Burton really became associated with with a lot of that culture yeah um and so I remember watching it many times for for sort of those reasons as well just like people talking about that sort of stuff in school and so yeah like I, I've seen it many many times but I, you know, I, I feel like I never really engaged with it like I did this time. Mm-hmm. I was like really analyzing it and trying to figure out tends like, to happen especially on, having tends to happen with this yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah, especially after like having read the source material and knowing that it was like this ancient legend of a story, basically. And uh, yeah, I mean, I had fun with it. I, I, I this isn't my favorite Tim Burton movie. And I think like he's kind of at the height of his powers in, in certain ways. Like he's got the insane production design and like a great cast but you know, I think he had the task of 
adapting something that was so short and like sort of adding on and then he turned it into this sort of like murder mystery yeah tons of changes pretty pretty engaging really really different story yeah yeah i agree with all of that um i i don't know exactly where this falls in the line for tim burton so i'm really curious to hear more about that but yeah i mean my my general takeaway from from watching it this time is i kind of Okay, first off, this movie is, like, all about aesthetics. <laughs> like, right. I feel like the main, like, the way to appreciate this movie is, is to lean into the aesthetics that it's going for. Because you have to understand that, like, that was more important than anything else, I think, for Tim Burton. Was he wanted it to look a certain way, wanted it to feel a certain way. And that was more important than it make making logical sense all the time. Um, and then it it really feels like, just like someone setting out to make a Christmas movie this was set out to make a Halloween movie. This is a Halloween movie. Right. Uh, through and mm-hmm. through. Um, and and I feel like that is the goal of this thing. And then all of that is also bound up in what I kind of started to look at as like a horror camp. Like it, it was like kind of cheesy and silly over the top levels of gore. And like, and it was done in a way that was very self-aware and like having fun with it. Like this movie has like a joking wink and a nod um, tone throughout as as it g- goes wild places. And honestly, to jump in there, so so does all of Tim Burton's movies. And that's something specific and distinct that I think we need to pull out of like sort of this like gothic um, sort of like German expressionism is something that I've talked about on the podcast a few times. But it's like early horror you think of like Nosferatu, you think of like Dr. Uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you think about like a lot of this old German expressionism, which was a movement in film, which was elongated shadows and, and jagged architecture and like, uh, you know, you eventually would go on to see it in Dracula and some a lot of the universal horror movies and Hammer films, which I'll come back to with, with Tim Burton. But um, yeah, but there's a specific blend that that burton does where it's like this really zany and like uh comedic take to it It doesn't take itself self-seriously yeah but it is very like there's gore there's killing there's a lot of like things that are difficult to grapple with being sort of connected to and a quirky character like like uh ichabod in this story like he's squeamish and he's a he's a police officer who's like chasing down murders and stuff like that, that's the kind of like like you think of Edward Scissorhands or Beetlejuice or any of these movies like it's like this weird like Beetlejuice is like you're grappling with death but it's very funny and you have a character like Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice and you're like that's sort of like and, and there's color in it whereas yeah. like normally you would think of it as just black this this film not as much but Beetlejuice is like very colorful right. uh, this movie like set out to be like we wanted to I, I read that they wanted this to be black and white and there was like no way that the studios were going to let that happen. And he was like, okay, well, then we're just going to make it look blue and we're going to throw a ton of, of uh, smoke in it for contrast yeah. and like up the contrast in post. And, and then every now and then uh, you'll see this like candy red blood that is just like, right. uh, you know, obviously made to, to really pop against all that, you know, muted color. Apparently because because of the filters they were using, there's like blue blue filters on the cameras. The that the ooze that we're seeing, the actual liquid, was like orange in real life, wow. and then like it, in order to make it look red. Well, it didn't film. look real, so you know right. what I mean. Like it looked over the top and and ridiculous. So uh, yeah, it's interesting they had to they had to do that to get that effect. Something else that you brought up though is like the campy nature of it. Like um, it really is campy, and that yeah. has to be something that you're signing on for. I can really see people pushing back against this movie if they're like wanting really serious like horror or spooky yeah. film, because like this is like a specific 
almost comedic yeah sort of horror film. i agree man because i think when i my memory of seeing this is i i w- didn't get it i was like the tone was so weird to me i i couldn't figure out how i was supposed to watch the movie it was like it was being silly yet it was like so many people were dying and it was so bloody and usually if that happens it's like a more serious movie you know I think young teenage Luke just didn't really know how to wrap my head around this movie. And so I just kind of was like, well, that was weird. And then moved on. Um, and I don't know what age it, I would have needed to be for that, for me to like really get it. But um, coming back to it now, I, it made a lot more sense. I was like, oh, okay, I can see what he's doing here. You know what I mean? Like whether or not it hits you and like, it's the kind of thing you're interested in. I'm like, I, I get what he's doing and what he's doing on purpose. And this isn't like accidental shit where he's just like not understanding how physics work. And, you know, it's just like whatever this he's having fun with it. He's doing things for a deliberate purpose and he wants to make a Halloween mm-hmm. fucking ass movie. And this is it. Yeah, he set out to. So I, I'm sure you you noticed like the prank scene plays out in the movie. Yeah. Like we actually get the prank scene. Like So he set out to make. A, a sleepy hollow film that was like referencing a lot of the things that he loved about some of the, like the original story and even some of the adaptations like the Disney adaptation I was reading that like there are references to that in this in this version mm-hmm. as well but um one of the specific things we'll I'm gonna get into Tim Burton a little bit now uh, if you're cool with that yeah let's do it okay so uh I'll talk a little bit more about this but um Hammer Films were were uh, specific they're, they're a production company that were making horror films I think they're still around honestly but they was they were really massive like the 50s 60s and 70s um, and that ultimately shaped um, Tim Burton I think a lot and he, he I think he set out in this movie to make one of those Hammer films because a lot of those Hammer films had people like Vincent Price those are the like movie like uh, the monster movies you're talking about those are the Hammer films yeah those are the those are like I'll, I'll get into some of them but like uh, Christopher Lee was like Dracula in like the, you know, I think it was probably like the 50s or 60s, probably the 60s. Bringing Christopher Lee yeah. into this film is his way of being like, I want to make one of these movies. Like, I want to make these. Like- I was so happy when I saw Christopher Lee. Oh, My yeah. wife was Legend. in the other room and she's like, is that Saruman? <laughs> I was like, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let me read you a little bit about Tim Burton for you. Timothy Walter Burton is an American film director, producer, writer, and artist. Known for his gothic fantasy and horror films such as Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, Sleepy Hollow, and Frankenweenie, Burton also directed the superhero film. Ed, Ed, just to throw that out there, this list has Ed Wood in there. That's not a gothic fantasy or horror film, but it's one of his films. It's a good, it's a Tim, it's a good Tim Burton movie. Okay. Um, so Burton also directed the superhero films Batman in 1989 and Batman Returns in 1992. I didn't know he did the, the original Batman, or the, not the original Batman, but the 1989 Michael Keaton Batman. Yeah. So that is extremely important because that that Michael Keaton, Tim Burton Batman changed Batman forever. Yeah. Like like he took he took what was campy and and Batman yeah. in like the 60s Batman and the comics honestly hadn't gone as dark. And um, he, he, I think he like defined Gotham, wow. which is going back to you talking about Gotham. Yeah. Uh, so Gotham in the comics, like he he redefined sort of like the Art Deco like Gothic style that you would go on to see because of because of that Batman movie. And then ultimately, like you can see the lineage like continue on. Like mm-hmm. the like the Batman stories got darker, more shadows, more taken seriously. And then you know eventually you get something like Christopher Nolan's Batman's that are like a grounded 
going away from that a little bit, but still within the same vein, you can still see the connection yeah. there. I uh, um, just as a quick aside, I've been rewatching Marvel, uh, the Marvel movies with my wife, and yeah. uh, we just watched Spider Man Homecoming, and yeah, Michael Keaton. Keaton's in it, and I was like, you, I was like, I was like, you know, he used to play Batman, <laughs> and I was like telling her about <laughs> the original Batman because I don't think she's ever seen it. You know what's awesome is is uh, if you watch Birdman, if you watch uh, I haven't seen that, the, but I've heard it's good. If, if Keaton in that, so it's like a, sort of all a send up to the like the superhero stuff, yeah. and and it's a, it's a, an incredible movie. But uh, it's funny to think about Keaton situated as like Batman, and then you did this Birdman movie that's sort of like a it's making commentaries on superhero films and then he goes and does Spider-Man Homecoming and honestly that that scene with Tom Holland and and he, he when he's bringing uh his daughter to the dance yeah. where he's like pulls the gun on that I mean, scene's amazing really that scene's awesome yeah he's really yeah. good in it but Keaton's awesome anyway <laughs> yeah all right so Burton has often worked with actor Johnny Depp and composer Danny Elfman who has composed scores for all but three of the films Burton has directed so I found this really interesting Didn't he also Vox do article. Big Fish, or is that not Tim Burton? He did, yeah. Okay. Big Fish I, is a great movie. Yeah. There. Um, so I found this Vox article about Tim Burton's visual aesthetic explained, and I, I definitely want to point people towards it because I got a lot of great information from it. But um, I had forgotten that Burton got his start working as an animator for for Walt Disney Studios. Wow. So he, yeah. So there's a lot to this story. I want to read it here. I'm going to get into it. So. Burton attended California Institute of the Arts, Cal Arts, um, which is a massive school for animation specifically, which opened in 1961, partly out of the last great vision of Walt Disney himself. During his schooling, there was a legendary era of Cal Arts animators, including famed Disney animator Glenn Keane, the Nightmare Before Christmas director Henry Selleck, Brave director Brenda Chapman, and Lion King director Rob Minkoff as well as Brad Bird, the director of The Incredibles. This group of animators coming in who would sort of, they were trying to like push the boundaries and do new things and continue to like innovate within Disney. And it just so happens that Burton was caught up in all this and he was uh, like, you know, one of the people who was a part of this crew of people. Like they were all like fairly close. Um, And, you know, this is how you can see Tim Burton create Nightmare Before Christmas and then have Henry Selleck, who was a classmate of his direct. Um, Nightmare Before Christmas and there's a lot you know I read a lot about how much stop motion means to Tim Burton and obviously that's the case with a lot of the things we've seen Um, Frankenweenie's his eventual adaptation of Frankenweenie which is about a boy whose dog dies and he's like wanting to resurrect his dog wow I've Um, never seen that it's interesting and the reason it's interesting is because he originally made it as a film that he pitched to Walt Disney but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me read a little bit more. One of his student films earned him attention from Walt Disney Studios, which brought him on as an animation apprentice after his graduation. While at Disney, he developed the concepts for a number of films that Disney initially rejected, including The Nightmare Before Christmas. Wow. He managed to produce a few works for Disney that showcased what would later become his instantly recognizable art style, a short film called Vincent, an homage to the actor Vincent Price, known for his appearance in Hammer Horror Films. So that was like his first standout thing that he created with Disney. Um, and like I said, the legacy for, of Hammer Horror Films is like can't be overstated. They're they're basically like modern horror owes everything to Hammer Films. I think Vincent Price was in one of the Legend of Sleepy Hollow adaptations. I, I forget which one, but I remember seeing that. I believe yeah. it. So Vincent Price, even more so than, than Christopher Lee, Vincent Price was like defined Hammer Horror Films. He was in all of them all the way through. And uh, the Burton really wanted 
Johnny Depp to sort of play a Vincent Price role in this movie. Yeah. He was like, play Vincent Price in all these. We, or, we covered the uh, was it the Last Man on Earth? Is that the name of that adaptation? We we did as a mm-hmm. bonus episode, and it was starring Vincent yeah. Price, right? Yes. Yeah. So that yeah. was that was our connection to it because I'm not super familiar with Vince, Vincent Price, but um, I remember talking yeah. about him. I think in that episode we did that bonus. Yeah, and we talked a lot about like how massive he was too. It was a bonus episode. Yeah. I don't know if it, we didn't end up releasing. I think it's. I think right now it's only on our Patreon feed. Yeah. So Disney produced Frank and Weenie, a story about a boy who tries to bring his small dog back from the dead in 1984, but then immediately fired him. So they, you know, they were working with him. They were letting him do his unique stuff, but it was too dark for the time. It was like about a, you see the dog die wow. and then he's like very like Frankenstein bringing this dog back to <laughs> life and stuff. Dark. It's pretty. So they, they, they fired him and, and this would create like a long standing weird relationship because obviously he would go on to work with Disney so many times. Like you think about the Alice in Wonderland live oh, yeah. action that came out in like 2010 so like there's so many times that it comes back nightmare before christmas ultimately is under that the disney umbrella as well but yes ultimately after he was fired from disney uh paul rubens Wee herman who was another classmate of his at cal arts uh he was studying theater at the time when when burton was there he he tapped burton to to direct a Wee herman film like once paul rubens was was Wee herman and was famous and soon after that he began he began this insane run uh, in 1988, he directed Beetlejuice, followed by 1989, Batman, wow. 1992, Batman Returns, 1990, Edward Scissorhands, uh, 1993, The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, which he produced and created, but left uh, Henry Selleck to direct his CalArts, um, you know, classmate. He directed Edward in 1994, Sleepy Hollow in 1999, Big Fish in 2003, Corpse Bride in 2005. Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street in 2007, and Alice in Wonderland in 2010. There's a few and other I'm adaptations sure th- in there that we might be able to touch on yeah. in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that there are some others in there that I that I didn't add, but those are some of the most notable. And like I, like, I was talking about like movies that had an impact, like Nightmare Before Christmas. Edward Scissorhands is absolutely in there. I remember loving Beetlejuice, and I, it's one of those movies that like I've wanted to go back and revisit for, for a long time. You now. should. Like, that would be a good Halloween movie. A couple of years ago, I went back and actually, like, since the podcast has started, like, maybe Wait, 2017, is, 2017. Is Beetlejuice an adaptation? No, I don't think so. It was so. an original, original film? I think so, yeah. I'm pretty sure, but maybe well, after, to, that would be wild. Look into it, yeah. Yeah, so I, I mentioned uh, German Expressionism a little bit just because it's, it's, like, so important to, like, his style, and I did want to talk a little bit more about, like, that very quickly just because, like, I, I want to do it justice. So I talked about it. It was, like, a, an art movement. It quickly expanded influence across Europe in the 1920s, drawing upon what was then the still new field of psychotherapy. Expressionist film became a cinematic medium in which the overall scenic and production design produced a feeling of dreamlike unreality and psychological tension for the viewer. The traits of expressionism have become incorporated so successfully into certain modes of storytelling within art, cinema, and animation that the casual viewer might not realize these features all have a distinct origin point. Among the most distinctive features are sharply exaggerated backdrops and landscapes with high, contra- high color contrasts, typically relying heavily on the use of shadows and silhouettes to heighten a feeling of tension or dread. Sets with jagged edges and alternately rounded, tilted, or visually disjointed and discombobulated spaces are another key element. Um, so there's that, that's expressionism and then Gothic art. I'm sure that you're familiar with Gothic art, but you know, Gothic art, architecture is very something that's very distinct Mm -hmm. and people can see. But uh, I think the difference in 
in gothic and expressionism though is is um a lot of the time you're seeing like someone um in a relationship lose someone and like the the mourning of that and then also like large castles and like um empty large spaces and and like this it's just like this overwhelming sense of like what we talked about a little bit before but when you take that expressionism and that gothic that gothic look in art and you blend them up together you get something you that, get that will become Tim Burton. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, yeah, like like you see something like Bloodborne is absolutely mm-hmm. in, inspired by that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's cool, man. I love that that whole vibe. Another another gothic film that I think about often is uh, Guillermo del Toro had this movie Crimson Peak come out a few years ago. Did you see that? I did not. It, it goes. It definitely goes more more like thrills than this does. Like it's it's like more scares and and like tension. Yeah. But like God, it's a, it's like magnificent. Just to look at, you're like, oh my God, incredible! Yeah. Like this, like I love Guillermo del Toro in that movie. Like when I think of gothic film now, I think of that movie. I don't remember when we talked about this, but like in the last, literally in the last like five years, I think I've changed a lot on how I feel about campy movies across any genre. Yeah, and like I just like for the longest time, I just didn't get camp. I didn't like it, and, and I, I've come around on that now. I'm still, it's not my favorite mode of storytelling. But like I can appreciate yeah. it a lot more now. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff we should go through and, and watch <laughs> adaptations and not. But Francis Ford Coppola apparently was a producer of this movie. Is there like yeah. a story there? Like, what's up with that? Apparently, Tim Burton didn't know that Francis Ford Coppola was an executive producer until like they were like in the edit bay. <laughs> so they were like editing. Yeah. So I guess it was like specifically his production company was sort of like footing. It was helping out. So he, I don't think there was a lot of creative. I, you know, I, I don't know for sure. Maybe I just know that this story goes that Tim Burton didn't know until late in the process. Wow. So maybe maybe Coppola did show up and help him out eventually. But yeah, it's pretty wild to see like those those types of people start to collaborate and like our projects are starting to mesh together. Yeah, I was I was surprised to see that name. Well, you know, like his you've seen. Have you seen Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Dracula? Uh, which who stars in that one? Is that Gary Oldman? Yes, it is. That's the Bram Stoker's Dracula directed by Coppola. Yeah, I yeah, I've seen that. It's been a while, but I remember it being pretty good. Definitely very intense. Yep. I mean, and and that's like you know clearly horror fans are are connecting here. Yeah. Coppola. And, hey, we and, might cover uh, that one one day. Actually, we've been needing we've been needing to do a Dracula adaptation. That would probably be yeah. a prime candidate. I would love to. Yeah, I haven't seen that in a long time either. But insane cast. All right, man. Let's get into the plot of this movie so we can we can t- discuss. Okay, so in 1799, New York City police constable Ichabod Crane is sent to the upstate Dutch hamlet of Sleepy Hollow, which has been plagued by a series of brutal decapitations. Received by the insular town elders, wealthy businessman Baltus Van Tassel, town doctor Thomas Lancaster, the Reverend Steenwick, notary James Hardenbrook, and magistrate Samuel Phillipsy. Ichabod learns that locals believe the killer is the undead, headless Hessian mercenary from the American Revolutionary War who rides a black steed in search of his missing head. Boarding at the home of Baltus Van Tassel and his second wife, Lady Van Tassel, he is taken with Baltus's spiritual daughter, Katrina. When a fourth victim is killed, Ichabod takes this victim's son, young Masbath, under his wing. Ichabod and Masbath exhume the victims and learn that, the, that a widow died pregnant. After Philipsy tells this to Ichabod, the horseman comes and decapitates Philipsy and leaves with his head. Ichabod, young Masbath, and Katrina venture into the western woods where a witch living in a cave reveals the location of the horseman's grave at the Tree of the Dead. 
He digs up the horseman's grave and discovers the skull has been taken, deducing that it has been stolen by someone who now controls him and that the tree is his portal into the living world. There's some changes in this version. Uh, Ichabod Crane is now a detective. And uh, we have to say, like, the heart of this story kind of becomes a, like, murder mystery, at least for a while. And then at the end, it kind of it kind of shifts again. But um, it, it is an interesting blend of genres, right? Like, you have the ghost story, you have the original story, and then you also have this murder mystery um, that, now, that now Ichabod Crane is at the heart of, which is very different than the story where he's just the school teacher. I think it's an interesting device because I think we've talked about it in past projects too. It's like a cop is going to be able to interact with everyone in the society, everyone in this culture here. And so like, it's inter- it is obviously interesting to see it in like an 1800s cop yeah. who's also like squeamish and seemingly like he's not even a he's not like a he's not a cop though right like he's just like an investigator who's been sent. he's like an yeah. inspector yeah, or something. yeah yeah I don't even know what his official title is but he's been sent from the the city to come and just like figure out what's going on with these murders and he almost seems like a crime scene investigator a little bit too like he's got all right. these like well early on he's talking about science and and reason and all yeah that. he's very sciencey right like and, and it's very yeah. clearly set up like he's going to be the science man coming in to be confronted with the supernatural but yeah. he's got these instruments which i was like this is why i was talking about the aesthetic is so important because there's several scenes where he's just pulling out these bizarre instruments and like looking at them and like fooling around with them. And I'm like, well, what is the purpose of this scene? And I'm like, oh, it's just because this is a creepy looking medieval instrument and, and Tim Burton just wants to have this on, on camera. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I think they cre- he like commissions things to be made like yeah. this. Like he's got like the glasses oh, and yeah. stuff. Like, it's like almost for, steampunk, for, like, but not because it's like. It's yeah, like goth punk. I don't know. There's like a he is this like thing, this like little blade on a on a, like a really thin piece of metal that just like barely moves, and he's just like using that apparently to cut into people or whatever. Yeah. Like, um, really interesting. Um, obviously that's re- in keeping with his aesthetic too of like Edward Scissorhands, and like he loves like when we get to the windmill eventually, like the gears and all of like the yeah. moving pieces and all that. Like he loves that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean it's a certain vibe. It's a certain type of uh you know backdrop but i will say like the the production design in this movie is insane like like the like top tier unbelievable like whether you super connect with the story or not what you're seeing on screen is all looks amazing like even like the early visual effects that they were using um in like 1999 like a lot of that stuff looked yeah mostly mostly held up there's you know kind of some jankiness but i mean it's 1999 so there's going to be a little bit here or there but yeah it does look pretty good and and i think uh what you're talking about with like style i think is is very important to appreciate this movie is to to realize that tim burton is going all in on style like if there was a style knob he broke it off you know what i mean like He's like, he wants that to be the story on almost, right? Is the feel, is the vibe, is the look. He wants people to dress up as these characters for Halloween. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and honestly, it really is, and it works, because that's what people talk about when they talk about Tim Burton. I think you that's know, what makes not... this movie memorable, you know? Yeah, and that's the thing, right, is it's not forgettable. It's not something that's like, like, it's not something that just like, I'm like, ah, uh, you know, it is a fine, I would say this movie's fine. You know, I think it's 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 fine overall, but the reason that it isn't just a forgotten relic is because it, it has so much going for it. Yeah. I think it's like there's just enough there for you to like latch on to like film history, 
and like his aesthetic and like what he's trying to do and his own blend of mm-hmm. in the style and well and, and, uh, and like uh, the humor i mentioned how it, you know i liken it to like home alone for example being a christmas movie right like it's wrapped in all of the aesthetics of christmas in such a way that it becomes almost a perfect movie to put on during christmas in the same way that this movie was made to be that for Halloween. And I think that's another reason why it has lasted. Because if you want to throw on a movie that is going to evoke the vibe of Halloween, like there are a few movies that are, are better than this. One of them is probably Nightmare Before Christmas, funny enough, you know, that Tim Burton thing. Yeah. Although not directed, but I, I you know what I mean? Like he, he's very good at this kind of thing, clearly. There's so much to talk about with this movie. We see like... Insane decapitations, oh, which was fun. Yeah, I you couldn't know. believe it because I went into this movie not knowing that it was rated R, and I was kind of expecting a PG thirteen vibe because, like, I feel like movies like this aren't really made anymore. You know what I mean? No, absolutely not. Like yeah. it, again, we've talked about it. It's like this. It feels like a mid budget rated R horror movie in a way that like is is now like lower budget stuff or you got big blockbuster stuff you know like it chapter right. one or something right well, like, and it's even an anomaly for horror movies at the time because it's not like normally if you're going to spend mid-budget on a horror movie it's going to go it's going to be like we're rated r check this shit out and they're going to go yeah like, but this feels into teenagers it. yet it's rated r you know, right. like this feels like a movie yeah. that you're that 16 year olds are supposed to be sneaking in to watch <laughs> to me at exactly least. Yeah, and then there's like extreme efforts made that for like costuming and like um, a lot of these effects. These these set like I read like seventy percent of this movie's set is shot on in studios and and on sets mm-hmm. that they've created. So it kind of like, looks that way. They created the entire town, and 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 it, it does. But they did a good job of of disguising. Yeah, no, like, it, it does just, feel it, that way. It does kind of look like a set, I guess. That's <laughs> all. Like especially with the way the mist sort of obscures things in the distance. Um, but but it doesn't bother me because I like that's the vibe of the movie. Um, we got to talk a little bit about Johnny Depp's performance. Um, he, it's interesting to look at an actor now that has been so defined by a single role, even though he's been in so many iconic things over the years, that it like echoes back <laughs> to, to earlier. Like, yeah, you're I saying specifically like Jack. Sparrow. I was noticing all the Jack Sparrow, Sparrow mannerisms in Ichabod Crane. You know. And it was so weird to be thinking that, but I'm like, I see Jack Sparrow and Ichabod Crane right now. Um, and it's it's interesting because it makes me go like, well, maybe this is just how Johnny Depp is or just like something he, he brings mm-hmm. to a lot of his roles. And I just didn't notice that before. It became like cemented in my mind for Jack Sparrow. Yeah. I mean, say what you, I, I, I do think Jack Sparrow is kind of overstated his welcome at this oh, point. Oh, for sure. That's an <laughs> absolutely unbelievably iconic character. Oh, no, like, yeah. That character there's is there's like a reason so... that they made so many movies. Yeah. So they're trying to milk it for everything they can. And I think later movies, like, Johnny Depp didn't give a shit. He was just there collecting a, collecting yeah, a check at a certain right. point and doing a shtick, almost. I read that, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I read Johnny Depp hasn't even watched Sleepy Hollow because he hates the way he acted in this film. Really? Yeah. It's interesting because I, I don't know. It was like a goofiness and it felt like he was he was like in on the joke and a lot of the scenes, right? With the way he would like, yeah. I don't know, like he jumped up on the chair and there was the spider and just like the way he was like squeamish mm-hmm. about the blood and he fainted like a hundred times. He literally fainted like five times throughout the movie. Really? Yeah. He kept fainting. You didn't like he you didn't pick up on that. Like he just kept doing this like whole like. Like he was squeamish and he was like, getting, fainting like knocked and down and stuff. I didn't. I guess I didn't remember him fainting, but yeah, maybe he did. 
Um, yeah. He definitely was like scrunching his face up every time blood was shown, but then he was also like performing autopsies on people. So it was, and then like, you know, he, every, he, he would like cut into some like, you know, weak old dead corpse and like all this blood would shoot on his face for no reason. It was mm-hmm. like, what? That's not how any of this works. Well, it was like a, this like recurring gag for whatever reason that like he didn't like it. This squeam, he was squeamish to this stuff, but then like he just kept getting like pelted with like globs of blood all the Bright, time and just cherry red it. blood. Yeah. So the body performance of, the Headless Horseman is performed by uh, Ray Park, who is kind of famous for like choreography, and specifically, you would know him as Darth Maul. In, oh wow! In, uh, Phantom Menace. Phantom yeah. Menace, yeah. So he, it's really interesting because like in that movie, he's completely obscured by makeup and everything, but he's doing all the flips and all the choreography with the lightsabers. In this, um, I read how much Burton loved his performance and how much he brought like a physicality to the body because there's no head. Yeah. So really, it has to be like exaggerated movements. And he thought he did a really great job. And honestly, I was looking for it and I was like, the choreography with the fight scenes is, is insane. It's really good. It's, it's, no, I, I yeah. actually, yeah, I was I was going to say like we're crediting Christopher Walken and he is like, you know, really interesting when he's is on on screen. But I was like, whoever, whatever the stunt double is, you know, and it's maybe not accurate to call him a stunt double. He's really just a performer at this point. Um, who mm-hmm. is the body the rest of the time it's really good um, those action yeah. scenes are are wild they go on for a really long time at one point that that, that wagon chase I was surprised at how long it, it yeah. extended for. I read that they shot that they were shooting that sequence for like three weeks or something insane like that yeah. like it was just constantly shooting well that. and I was remembering like that's, that's one of the things at the time is I was super into D&D and I remember just loving the idea of dual wielding a sword and an axe and being a complete badass. And I wanted to like make a character like that or something. Or I can't remember how how it manifested, but I remember like young Luke who was who was deep into D and D being just inspired by that. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it is very cool. Uh, so I'm gonna read some more plot. That night, the horseman kills midwife Beth Killian and her family, as well as Katrina's suitor, Brom Van Brunt, when, he's, when he attempts to intervene. Ichabod hypothesizes that the horseman is attacking select targets linked by a conspiracy. He and Masbath visit Hardenbrook, who reveals that the first victim, Peter Van Garrett, had secretly married the widow, writing a new will that left his estate to her and her unborn child. Ichabod deduces that all the victims are either beneficiaries or witnesses to this new will, and that the horseman's master is the person who would have otherwise inherited the estate, Baltus, a Van Garrett relative. Upon discovering the accusation, Katrina burns the evidence. Hardenbrook commits suicide, and Steenwick convenes a town meeting to discredit Ichabod, but Baltus bursts into the assembly at the church, announcing that the horseman has killed his wife. The horseman attacks the church, but is unable to enter. In the chaos, the remaining elders turn on each other. Steenwick kills Lancaster and is in turn killed by Baltus, who is then suddenly harpooned by the horseman who drags him through a window and out of the church and acquires his head. And this is what I was talking about, like the Halloween stuff. Like it was like ticking all the boxes, right? It was like we got a gnarled, twisted tree of blood. We have a horseman. We have a witch in a in a cave. We have a sp- yeah. spooky apparition. Um, that she sort of becomes um we have you know like i said earlier there's a spider there's a there's like a a twirly shadow on the wall thing you know with with like a flying witch like there's so many like and there's jack-o'-lanterns everywhere um it's just there's just so much halloween all throughout this movie the witch so let's talk about some of the additions like the addition of the witch felt like just we needed to add some sort of another supernatural element like a witch to to explain the horseman in some way 
Um, and it is also interesting to think just the change of leaning into the fact that the horseman is supernatural and he's just coming from right. hell and killing oh, people. Yeah. And, and it's not, there's no ambiguity left. Like we're going supernatural with this yeah. one. He murders the entire family. He comes back for the little child and murders him, yeah. takes his head. I read that, that uh, <laughs> the, the studio was not happy with that scene. And they were like, we can't have a kid be killed in this way. And Tim Burton was like, it's rated R. He's like, the thing that I hated as a kid growing up is seeing kids put in peril and then always saved. And he like really wanted kids to die in this movie. So like we get like an unborn child was yeah. murdered. Like no, the yeah, pregnant mother was yeah. murdered. And then the kid like that, that. I mean, that seems terrifying for yeah. a child. Like he comes back for the child and pulls him out of the floor and like you know he's killed off screen. He's but... killed off screen, but he's like putting. You see him shoving a third head into the bag. You're like, yeah. I, I remember that. That one of the cool things that something like that can do, um, as an audience member, is it and as a creator, right? Like you're 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 cultivating this attitude. You want the audience member to feel like you're out of your mind as a filmmaker. They're like, that's what he, I mean, that's what some people are trying to do. And Tim Burton clearly is doing. Yeah, because you know? when that happens, you're like, well, fuck, I don't know what's going to happen in this movie anymore. Cause I never expected that to happen. And and once you can pull that off like that, that's like that's priceless, I think, um, is to, to convince convince your audience member or your reader. If you're an author, you know, that you're that you're a little bit out of your mind. I think uh, I think it works. It's kind of unsafe. You're kind of unsafe. Not not like a, you know incredibly triggering thing but maybe i don't know like you want to feel a little bit like you don't know what's coming because if you start feeling too safe you can get a little bored so yeah it's a fine line to walk obviously and there's 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 considerations but yeah i mean it's you know it's bold and it's obviously like his connection to disney he's had many connections to disney and i I read something where he was like honestly it's normal for me to get fired by disney at this point i've been fired by them like three times and rehired (laughs) like they like he i mean he just made dumbo recently you know what i mean like it's a continued it's this whole cycle of everything but um yeah i that that sort of connection might some some other filmmaker might be like oh i you know i work with disney i don't want to go too far and and i think burton's like he's like fuck it let's do it let's kill kids and stuff uh yeah and you know what and he, you know what sure, like that sure... sticking to a stick, sticking to a vision is you know it's i think that's the ultimate goal for most artists yeah. you know like being able to stick out their vision especially in a process like filmmaking where there's thousands of people involved in it basically yeah i, I love that to see gunpowder the horse come right out of the story like that, there's a couple of like holdovers yeah. right like he gets hit in the head with a pumpkin you know gunpowder mm-hmm. the horse there are certain things that the prank were there the prank played pretty well yeah. too like the first time he was com- like i didn't remember i was like I didn't remember that the plank played out very mm-hmm. similar to the book, and, and it worked for me. All the dream stuff was very bizarre, um, as we realized that like his mother was into witchcraft, and she got, I think, thrown in an Iron Maiden by his father, and he got yeah. like injured on dark. torture devices and stuff, like really dark. And then like the dreams themselves were like these bizarre little like vignettes, you know, and and one of them ends with his mother like hovering into the air and you're like is this part of the dream or did this go down this yeah. way? I don't know. I kept thinking I keep I kept thinking that like he was trying to draw some parallel to like Ichabod didn't know it but he was connected to Sleepy Hollow in some way. Yeah. Like he his like his mother may have been someone who was from this area and like you know all that kind of stuff. But ultimately it was just the the connection of the witch like the sort of witchcraft and then which I guess ties him to the witchcraft of Katrina's character, right? Katrina, yeah. Her, like, yeah. Sort of yeah, that's what I was thinking. Good, good witchcraft. She's performing. Uh, you know, it comes. Yeah, to, comes to be. There's also the moment where, and, and like these, these two things did work for me. I, I bought hook, line, and sinker that Katrina was the person who was controlling 
the the headless horseman when that moment was happening and he was leaving i was like oh shit i forgot about that that makes sense like that's a cool character you know we've talked about like um women being villains and like like how that frequently it doesn't happen very frequently and like um what it can mean to to actually like lean into that and like he did it twice like i was like oh it's the father and then i forgot that it wasn't the father and i was like oh it's definitely it's definitely katrina like that makes so much sense that's a cool you know twist you know dagger in the back for ichabod and then the, the the other twist is that it's the it's the stepmother and I'm like of course it's the stepmother how did yeah. I not see that stepmother like, trope. I should I, I knew I mean, we talked about that it's Snow White right like the evil stepmother well well and when I say the other twist worked for me I was like oh it's it's like it's not the it's not the father it's the stepmother and I thought that for for a good part of part of the movie and then he does the my the husband comes in and says my wife has been killed like off screen mm-hmm. that happens and he shows up at the church and i'm like oh shit i was wrong I, he subverted the step the stepmother trope and then he really subverted the s- subversion yeah man subverted you right out of your seat apparently <laughs> yeah yeah no I, I mean i'm with you it was it was surprising but as we're getting there i i i do feel like the last act of the movie is kind of the weakest I, um yeah it, it, it i think once the reveal it happens gets, I'm, I, the rest of it was kind of i mean like, like it's a, a, it's silly action. throughout but it gets like even more silly yeah. um I, I i really didn't like the design of the dress that the stepmother is wearing at the end for me it felt very out of place um mm-hmm. even in this like very stylized era um in this very stylized film um just for the for that time period i was like i don't know about this it was it was very like uh, it reminded me a little bit of, like other mother from Coraline or something like trying to evoke yeah. the spider web I, and stuff. I actually think I I actually think I read something that it was like a reference to Beetlejuice or something. Okay, like that, yeah, I could see that. It, it felt more like it, a Beetlejuice. It, it kind of feels like that, and like and, and in that way, it does feel out of place. Exactly. Like you said, like that that vibe doesn't really like go together perfectly. Yeah. But let me let me finish up this summary real quick, okay. and then we can finalize our thoughts. Initially concluding that Katrina controls the horseman, Ichabod discovers that the diagram she drew beneath his bed and in the church during the meeting, which he believes summoned the horseman, is really one of protection and additionally finds a post-mortem wound on Lady Van Tassel's decapitated body. Lady Van Tassel, alive and well, emerges from the shadows and reveals herself to Katrina as the master of the horseman. She faked her death and used the planted headless body of the Van Tassel's servant girl, whom she had killed previously. She, t- she takes Katrina to a local windmill and explains her true heritage from an impoverished family evicted years ago by Peter Van Garrett when he favored Baltus and his family instead. She swore revenge against Van Garrett and all who wronged her family, pledging herself to Satan if he would raise the horsemen to avenge her by killing them, which would also allow her to claim the Van Garrett and Van Tassel estates uncontested. She used fear, blackmailing, and lust to manipulate the other elders into her plot. Having eliminated all other heirs and witnesses, as well as her sister, the crone witch, for aiding Ichabod, she summons the horsemen to finish Katrina. Ichabod and Masbath rush to the windmill as the horsemen arrives. After an escape that destroys the windmill and a subsequent chase to the Tree of the Dead, Ichabod retrieves the horseman's skull from Lady Van Tassel and returns it to him, breaking the curse and setting the horsemen free from Lady Van Tassel's control. With his head restored, the horseman spares Katrina and abducts Lady Van Tassel, giving her a bloody kiss and returning to hell with her in tow, fulfilling her end of the deal. Ichabod returns to New York with Katrina and young Masbeth, just in time for the new century. It's I, I just keep thinking about the different forms uh, at play here, right? Like you have the classic horror tale, then you have the mystery 
which I think kind of culminates in this parlor reveal scene where he he makes some accusations, even though it's just like one guy. <laughs> it's just this one guy who he's laying it out to. And he's wrong about a lot of stuff. But that feels like it's kind of the culmination of that of that mystery plot until the twist happens. Right. And it's revealed that he's been wrong about all this. And then it, it like simultaneously goes into this other kind of mode of storytelling where you have a villain who is monologuing and outlining her entire plan. And we're seeing flashbacks that like fill in the blanks. Um, and it's, it's like kind of in keeping with mystery, but it, it's also, I don't know. It's very like cartoony almost, right? Like it's, it, it's, it's almost ridiculous. Um, and you know, in that sense, it's, it's like you live by the camp, you die by the camp, I guess. Cause like maybe that works for some people, but it was getting a bit to be a bit too much, too tropey, too, too something for me. Or it started losing me. And I agree with you. I think the I think once the reveal comes, it's the story's completely downhill at that point. Like we're at the bottom of the mm. hill. And like we everything's been revealed to us with that twist. And then we get the extended, like, kind of extra bit where she like you said, she's monologuing. They have the extended fight with the horseman and like the back and forth with the skull and who can yeah. control she's, it. And, she's, it's and, really like, ridiculous. It, she's hiding it behind her back and stuff. And I'm like, he's headless. Like he's not look he's not seeing with his eyes. So how can you just hide his skull behind your back and he doesn't notice it? It did feel like it, it did just feel like there it, the story was had run its course at that yeah. point and it was like kind of just uh, like um, overstaying its welcome a little, a little bit. bit for sure. I do got to shout out that tree of death though. What a fucking bizarre cool. like he's cutting into it and there's just blood spurting out onto him and then I'm like, "Well, what are we going to see here when he cuts into it? A whole pile of heads and just swimming in a sea of blood." It is like incredibly dark and and well when he gory. and that's like the gateway to hell when he drags it's her in. It's the gate in, to hell. Like, like what the fuck? Yeah, when he drags her in it like fucking just blends her. And his body whole the whole in, horse like, jumps yeah. into it. Like that that oh man, this movie's wild. And honestly yeah. when it's doing that wild shit it's it's kind of working at its best, I think. Um you I know, agree, and, yeah. and when the horseman I guess is also just like an unstoppable you know whirlwind of carnage is also when he's at his best i mean the the sta- spearing uh baltus through the window and yanking him out into the graveyard like that was so epic like i don't know it was amazing yeah it just fit like it fits it's in keeping until it's not yeah. right like it, it i love all of that stuff and then and then i think some of it some of it goes a little far but yeah, I mean the the cast is is in, is unbelievable. Like Ian McDermott is in here, Richard J- uh, Griffiths, Christopher Lee. We yeah. talked about Michael Gambon. We got well Christina Ricci. Christina Ricci. You know, we got got to shout her out. She's really good in a really interesting yeah. role too. Like the fact Wait, that she t- was like did somewhat. Did do the Adams Family? I don't think so. I actually just looked it up. It was not Burton who directed. It was Barry Sonnefeld. But Barry Sonnefeld directed Get Shorty, which we covered That's a so while funny. back. Um, but that's Christina Ricci in, in Adams Family Values. So many weird connections. Yeah, yeah, I, and I feel yeah. like you know that's she's known for those movies, right? And and it, and the reason I bring them up is because those movies have that vibe, right? Like that that horror yeah. Halloween vibe. And so it's interesting to be like, I'm going to take Christina Ricci, who's now a little bit older, and put her in my horror like Halloween movie, um, and it works. Yeah, it does work, right? That connection, and you're getting built-in fans yeah. too, like those fans who are coming along with the Adams family. Uh, so when they return to New York at the end. It, it really highlighted something that I was noticing throughout. And that is that uh, apparently in Tim Burton's world, 
uh, at least for this movie, there are no people of color that exist in America. <laughs> there yeah. is not one. I don't think I saw a single extra when they came back to New York City that was a person of color. I th- I want to say there was there was criticism leveled against Tim Burton because like he something came out about how he didn't want black people in his films or something insane yeah. like that. Um, I don't re- I don't know if that was an exact quote yeah. or I just remember like so vaguely something about yeah. that now that you and, say that. And, 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 and I it's, noticed it. it's like it's clear. Yeah, it's very blatant that like he has no people of color, like yeah. you said. Yep. Not not no good. Um, but man, this movie, uh, it was it was an experience. It was I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it more this time than when I originally saw it. And I, and I think it. Uh, it was because I, I have changed a little bit on camp. It was because I could watch it within like a new way and then comparing it to that original source, having just read it, it was cool to see a filmmaker coming in very clearly of like, I'm going to take this old story and I'm going to put a spin on it. And I'm going to do my own thing. And I'm going to make my own piece of art that is, it that differs greatly. Um, I don't know. It's cool to see. It's it's like we talk all the time about like what makes good adaptations and like, you know, you can go the super faithful route or you can go this route or you can go somewhere in between. But like this is definitely in that in that like uh, Dr. Strangelove, like like certain ones we've covered where it's like extremely transformative adaptation. Yet I think the result is still pretty good here. Um, sometimes great. Um, I, I don't know. I guess we got to debate like was this greatness or not? I don't know. But uh yeah. you know what what are your thoughts I, on this film I, as a whole i love filmmakers who are like sponges for things that they love who absorb and blend and create and a new um and i love like even even something i didn't mention like the the windmill is so clearly a reference to frankenstein like the windmill going up in flames and oh, everything is so much like that. a frankenstein homage okay. in a in a horror story like this but just to see him grab everything like this and like to use the influence and the power that he had at the time to create a movie like this i think is really interesting and like it's you know to create your own style is so difficult to to differentiate yourself from from other filmmakers in that way and to to make big swings to take big swings like this um yeah i i think it's uh do you want to try to do you want to try to see which was yeah, better because i got think to. We're, we're at the, at the end, end. we gotta we gotta vote on yeah. which was better story or film and now you know what's interesting is like there's a lot of other adaptations for this so i, I like that we've sort of given ourselves some options for bonus content in the future um, there's definitely a yeah. lot of stuff that we could touch on, but, um, yeah, the, I, the question is of these two, right. Which is better and very difficult thing to, to compare. I mean, obviously separated by hun- hun- over a hundred years, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in different mediums. I think I know where I land though. Do you want me to go first or you want to go? I'll go first real quick just to say, say, cause I, I I'm kind of formulating as I go, but the, I, I think the legacy can't be overstated also in the in this story, right? Like this story clearly exists with or without this movie because there's been so many adaptations. There's been so many versions of it. Um, but in this case, I'm going to take the movie for the sheer fact that like, I, I think seeing something as stylized and created by somebody like Tim Burton, um, this, this is the version that will always stick out to me personally. And it might be because it's, you know, we saw it at a formative time in our lives. But I think like having having a filmmaker like this, ha- at least showing the example that like filmmakers can take these big swings and can create their own their own genres almost and, and like have their voices heard in these ways. Like that's something I, I definitely want to promote. And, and like, you know, if he did say make statements about how he didn't want black people in his movies, uh, like fuck him. I don't think that that's cool at all. Not and at all. I think that 
that's a reason to to not uh, celebrate him. But I do think like hearing seeing someone have such a sp- specific style is really interesting in filmmaking, and I do want to see more of that from new artists as they yeah, come up. Maybe don't have. Uh, so many racial problems. I don't know. We don't know exactly what yeah. he said. We should just put it out there. But um, I, I have also heard some rumblings, uh, which is makes me uncomfortable. Um, story versus movie, though. Um, I, I was on the fence for a while on this one, like trying to figure out where I landed because the story is so old. And we talked about like the Katrina stuff where Washington Irving, you can feel him kind of perving out on the, about this like young woman that he once met through the story. Um, so that was a little weird. But, like, if I'm going to forgive somebody, I'm going to forgive someone from 1820 a little more than I'm going to forgive the 1999 Tim Burton. Um, and, and so, like, a lot of that stuff, I was, like, I was expecting it. And, you know, it didn't completely ruin the story for me. You know, take that with a grain of salt. Um, and it's not like it's, like, uh, a, a particularly spooky story or anything these days. But I think I am going to give it to the story as much as, as much as that aesthetic and that, that style is cool for the film. I have to give it up to this like groundbreaking foundational story in American literature, this, this enduring piece of horror fiction, this, this author who fought for author's rights early on and fought for copyright law and like wanted to be paid for his work and celebrate authors as a profession. Um, All these things are bound up in this guy and in this story that I think are so cool. Um, and I'm really glad that I was able to like learn about it because honestly, I didn't know this for whatever reason. We, we must have skipped over Washington Irving in my, you know, Florida American lit classes, or maybe we, or maybe we <laughs> did and I just wasn't paying attention because that is definitely possible. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, man, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to give it to the story. Ultimately. I think that's right. It makes sense. I mean, the story is like, that's a legend for a reason yeah. at this point. It literally is a legend. I agree. So yeah, whenever you're listening to this, maybe, maybe you did listen to it later in the year. Um, thank you for joining us for it, you know, and, and having a little bit of horror, you know, whenever it finds you, it's definitely always fun. Um, I want to shout out our patrons just, you know, Thank them for supporting us. I realize that's not something we've been doing as much lately because we kind of changed up the the way we begin our shows. Um, But yeah, I mean, like this wouldn't be possible without our patrons. So if you wanted to to find out how you can support us too, check out our Patreon. And and we've mentioned some bonus episodes a few times on here. Um, We put them out every month um, and we have lots of content on there now um, that that you could check out if you wanted to support us financially. If you want to connect with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And if you wanted to support the podcast in another way, but you didn't want to have to spend any money, uh, we always love to see a rating and review, which by the way, just as an aside, I recently I went through and I was like, I got to like put my money where my mouth is. Well, that's not the right term because it's free, but I was like, I'm going to go in and I'm going to rate some podcasts that I've been listening to for a while and I've never like given them a written review. Um, and I, I knocked out like five or six right in a row. And I went back and I was like looking today at one of them and I read what I wrote and it was super awkward. I said the word podcast, I think three times in three sentences. And I was like, this is cringy. And I realized that I'm like, I think this is one of the stumbling blocks for people, right? Like you get self-conscious about like, what am I saying? Do I, am I saying it in a way that is that like it makes sense? Or am I going to come off weird or cringy? Um and like, I'm here to say that like, I totally like I did that and I, I wrote something incredibly cringy, but like, 
I'm still glad I did it. You know, I'm still helping the podcast out. I'm sure they're still happy to get the five star. Um, and it still does help. So like, don't worry about it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a weird form. You're typing it on your phone. I understand that you don't get a chance to necessarily review it, but like the, the reviews help no, no matter what, don't let that be a stumbling block. We all do it, including me. <laughs> apparently. Yeah. I need to be better about that. Honestly, I should, I should go leave some more reviews. Yeah, man. How are you going to ask um, people to leave us reviews if you're not doing it right? That's what I, exactly, that's what I yeah. realized. <laughs> I need to. Yeah. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Absolutely. So thank you for waiting for the end of the episode. Uh, We are going to announce our next project. Um, We are going to be getting into Shadow and Bone uh, by Lee Bardugo. I think is how you say the name. I'll double check on that for next week. uh, Make sure I'm getting it right. Um, Netflix adaptation going to start coming out soon. Uh, We will be covering the entire novel, I believe, next week. And then we'll be getting into the TV show, which we're going to do in two parts um uh dividing the season in halves so yeah we're excited to get into a ya fantasy story which uh since we're not we haven't done any harry potter in a long time and maybe we'll maybe we're not gonna do it again i don't know um it's nice to get a, a different piece of ya fantasy that we hopefully can sink our teeth into and hopefully can can be really fun i'm looking forward to it yeah i'm excited i'm i'm ready to check it out it should be i mean it's netflix i hope i hope they do you know do it justice i hope so too And we will find out next week at least what the source material is like. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, thanks for listening.